You can teach an old dog new tricks. Hello everyone and Happy New Year. Welcome to Season 4, Woohoo! Episode 1 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage slash spy writer, P.A. Duncan. I hope everyone's holidays were exactly what you were hoping for. Mine was quiet, partly because of ongoing surgery recovery, and partly because we had our family Christmas a few days after Christmas Day because of holiday working and child custody schedules. But it was good. Different, but good. My grandkids are growing so fast. Two of them will be 15 this year. I'm still not quite sure how that happened. And I suspect with the third one, not far from being a teenager, life is about to get interesting. Good thing I'm the granny and can hand them back. So, confession time. As much as I like, as I love, writing about espionage and spies, I really always wanted to be a mystery writer. In my teens and 20s, I read every Agatha Christie novel published. I then discovered Sarah Paretsky, Sue Grafton, Louise Penny, P.D. James, Tana French, Elizabeth Peters, and on and on. Lots of other writers who wrote great mysteries. And don't worry, gentlemen, I've read Doyle, Chandler, Stout, Grisham, and many more. Because of all of these excellent mystery writers and their fantastic characters and engaging stories, I wanted to be one of them. Turns out, writing a mystery is a lot more complicated than I thought. I have local mystery writer friends who insist that plotting before writing a mystery is the only way to do it. You've got to know how to set up the clues and where to insert them at key points in the story as well as throw in the red herrings that lead you off into misdirection, and then the big reveal, but all without giving away too soon who the killer is. The only problem is that all that plotting uh, isn't me. But back in 2011... I gave a mystery a try for National Novel Writing Month. And yes, it was 
freaking hard. The story ended up with two threads, one in essentially present day or 2011, and one in 1944. But both of those threads were essential to the mystery. Of course, the sections in the past required a lot of research, which I don't mind, but some of the research revealed that there were sections of the story in the past that I got wrong historically. As a critique group member, who was also an historian, pointed out to me, since my history study focused on Europe between the World Wars and then the Cold War, I kind of skipped over World War II. So I didn't know and was embarrassed I didn't know that all U.S. casualties from D-Day were buried in France. No bodies were returned to the U.S. until after the war, and only then when repatriated by families. However, that totally messed up a couple of scenes that I thought were needed to show a character's mental breakdown. So, of course, there's dramatic license. But I'm a historian, remember? I did come up with a plausible scenario of how a few fatalities could have returned to the U.S. after D-Day before Eisenhower said, no, we're not sending any back because they needed the planes for supplies and so forth. I ran that past a couple of history professors I know, and with a bit of tweaking, I was able to keep the scenes. But the interweaving of essentially two plots, one in the past, one in the present, and then getting them to intersect logically was a difficult creative exercise, a challenge. But, hey, who doesn't love a challenge? In the end, however, we will find out who done it. Mystery solved. After a bit of misdirection, of course, but that's a mystery for you. Is this a huge departure from writing about spies? Yes and no. So, yes, in that the characters are everyday people with kind of boring lives, no covert operations or black bag jobs or dead drops or the like involved. And it's also no in that my spy books have intricate plots with lots of thread and somewhat of a mystery inside them. And in the mystery that I wrote, one of the characters is a private detective who is hired to spy on someone and he uses tradecraft. So I was able to incorporate that aspect of my espionage writing into this mystery. But this story is a departure for me. It's definitely a departure. There is a female protagonist who grows to become a strong character. She doesn't start out that way. In fact, she's rather snobby and unlikable in the beginning. 
There is a male character, the private detective, dealing with PTSD from fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq. There is a selfish, entitled teenage girl and a young man who takes whatever he wants. Oh, and there's a dead baby. A year or so after I retired to write for myself, I really hadn't written much. Then I came across a Facebook group called Friday Fictioneers. Every Wednesday, the admin posted a photo prompt, and we had until Friday midnight to post a 100-word flash fiction story. There were no prizes involved, only comments and suggestions from other participants and readers. I came to love it very quickly. It was great fun, made a lot of friends that are only my Facebook friends. I haven't ever met any of them face-to-face, but that's okay. I quickly came to look forward to each week's prompt, and as the weeks went on, writing a 100-word story got easier and easier. I think my first try was like 400 words, and I had to edit, edit, edit to get it down to 100. But the more I did it, the easier it became. Then one Wednesday in the spring of 2011, the photo prompt was of a wall with peeling old-fashioned wallpaper, and part of the wall had been torn down to the studs. For some reason, probably because I'm weird, Edgar Allan Poe's Cask of Amontillado came to mind. Now, this is the story where the protagonist, if you will, comes across an old friend and realizes just how much he hates this friend who has an affection for wine, particularly Amontillado. So the protagonist slash antagonist lures him down into this basement to show him a cask of Amontillado and in the process bricks him up into a wall in the basement. So that came to mind. But instead of walling up a guy who pissed you off, I asked myself that universal writer question. What if? What if someone had gotten pregnant, hid the pregnancy, had the baby, killed it, and hid the body in a wall, only for it to be found decades later? My fellow Friday fictioneers loved the 100-word story I wrote, and several of them said, oh, you, you have to write that in a longer story. Why did she do this? Why did this happen? Or several also said, oh, I want to see that story in a novel. Well, I gave that some thought, and on a train trip to New York a couple of months later, I took out my notebook and my pen, and I plotted the story, actually kind of making an outline. Yeah, I know. Me? An outline? That November, when NaNoWriMo came around, I 
created a first draft I was pretty excited about. And it followed the outline more or less, but then there were those moments, those expositional moments when you're writing where an idea comes to mind unbidden and you realize that it has to be in the story. But as a mystery, it was really weak. I'd read enough of them to know that. It would need a lot of work to be a true mystery. So I worked on a revision, which expanded the story and the characterizations, and that showed me I needed to write it in specific parts. Like I couldn't do the whole present day and then do the whole back in the past sections. I had to do present day, then a little bit of in the past that was related to what happened in the present day. And so that's what ended up happening. Present day, past, present day, past, all throughout the novel. I felt pretty confident enough in what I'd done. I think this was about the second revision that I brought 40 pages of it to a critique workshop that I took in 2013. The workshop instructor loved it so much, he asked me to send him the entire manuscript. He sent me back some suggestions, which I incorporated. And then once I'd accomplished that, he wanted it again so he could hand carry it to an agent in New York. I was giddy. I was beyond giddy. I did the thing where I visualized this book winning all the mystery awards and hitting all the bestseller lists. I saw that Edgar on my shelf, and I saw my bank account swell. And then came the response from the agent. Thank you for submitting, but this is not for us. That balloon deflated pretty quickly. But I still had faith in the story. I did put it aside for several years as I worked on my espionage fiction, but every now and then I'd open the file, revise some more, and then two years ago, I finally got it to a point where I gave it to my beta readers. From their comments, I revised some more, did another almost complete rewrite, and sent it to my editor. Well, she loved it. She had very few comments to make on it. And she said, I had captured the essence of a mystery. And in two months, you'll get to read Supreme Madness of the Carnival Season. But no, it's not a carny story. The title comes from Poe's story, A Cask of Amontillado, which in the beginning has a line that captured my interest. Quote, it was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. End quote. That line really resonated with me, and that's how the title came about. Now, the pre-order for Supreme Madness should be available in mid-February with a mid-March launch. Now, 
as dark as some of my espionage fiction is, this mystery is darker and definitely not a cozy mystery. And now commercial time. A January social media marketing break has worked well for me, so this month, no unending posts begging you to buy my books without using those words. Promos for Supreme Madness will start on February 1st, but in January, as of now, I don't have any sales going on, but that could change whenever something strikes me. So, of course... I'll mention it here, and you can go to my Facebook author page, my Instagram account, and read all about it there. But, you know, all my books, whether they're ebooks, paperbacks, or hardcover, are reasonably priced. And if you don't believe me, go to Amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan and check them out you're bound to find one or two or several you'll like. And commercial over. I'm going to read you the first chapter of Supreme Madness of the Carnival season, but just the first chapter, because I've got all of February and March to promote this publication, so... I don't want to, you know, dive into it right now. So here we go. Oh, and this chapter takes place in present day or 2011-2012, right around that time frame. Behind the contractor's back, Marilyn looked at Hunter and rolled her eyes. Well, that there wallpaper stuck to the wood, the contractor said. I wouldn't recommend papering over it, because the new stuff will just peel. If you want it gone, you're going to have to take the wood paneling down, then drywall. Marilyn and Hunter exchanged another look, and she could read Hunter's disdain. What the contractor had told them had been obvious. They were looking for alternatives and not getting them, but... She marveled at their ability, her and Hunter's ability, to communicate without words. That contented her, made her feel safe, because so much of her life had involved words shouted and screamed around her, at her, until she met Hunter. Their connection went beyond their ten-year marriage and into what popular fiction called soulmates. Ah, I know you wanted to save them old walls, the contractor continued, but sometimes it, it just don't work out. Hunter's jaw clenched at the bad grammar grating against his ears. Marilyn hid her smile when Hunter's voice deepened to what she called manly mode to reply. We like the rustic feel the old wood gives the room, he said. But, as you can see, we've tried everything to get that wallpaper off. Marilyn had begun to think they should have painted over the wallpaper. 
The four walls of the room were a wreck as a result of the various stripping agents they'd tried and given up on. Well, you see, what's done happened is, over time, this here old wallpaper paste done bonded with the wood, so... The contractor shrugged and looked from Hunter to Marilyn and back. She wondered if he were trying to determine which of them would be the softer touch. Uh, yeah, drywall ain't the same, but what can you do? Now, I just happen to have an estimate here for the demo. Well, well, that means demolition, by the way. Hunter's expression stayed neutral, but the quirked eyebrow he gave Marilyn told her, of course he has an estimate. They huddled to look over the handwritten estimate, and Hunter told the contractor they'd have to think about it. The man frowned. You know, you shouldn't be thinking you can do it. It takes special equipment, respirators, that kind of thing. These here old walls have a lot of nasty dust trapped in them. Could be mold, mildew, and such behind that paneling. He leaned toward them, voice lowered to impart a secret. Why, might even be that there asbestos, you know. The contractor fixed his dark eyes on Hunter, a man-to-man thing, Marilyn supposed, but Hunter was good. I understand, Hunter said, but my wife and I have to discuss this, and we'll let you know. Eyebrows disappearing beneath the bill of his cap, the contractor said, Your wife? He looked at Marilyn, eyes narrowed. You said on the phone you was Miss Shook. I'm Ms. Shuck, and I'm also Mr. Russell's wife, she replied. God, she thought, I've moved to the Taliban stronghold of Virginia. I see. The contractor's fingers dove under his cap to scratch his scalp. Well, I, I guess that's kind of the modern thing to do. My wife, she was right proud to take my name. He wished them a good day and left, shaking his head. Hunter followed him to the door. Marilyn looked around what they had planned as their parlor. She liked the sound of that word, parlor. It implied gentility, class, something she'd known little of until she left the family farm for college. There she'd met Hunter, from an old and prosperous North Carolina family, a family for whom gentility was inbred. This was the only room needing an overhaul in the house they'd bought in Ewington's historic district. The previous owners had done a good job maintaining the exterior, and most of the rest of the house had been updated at some point in the past few years. The last owner hadn't bothered with the parlor, though, and Marilyn suspected he'd been as stymied by the tenacious wallpaper as she and Hunter had. Regardless of the shambles it looked like now, she envisioned holding writing salons here with tea and cakes served by the local baker she'd befriended. The house clung to the side of one of the many hills that comprised Ewington, Virginia and the houses in this district dated from the 1930s and 1940s 
when Ewington's railway hub and World War II industries made millionaires of local businessmen. Only a few of the old estates, as the townspeople call them, had stayed in the original owners' families, but the Town Historical Society considered this neighborhood and its houses the jewels in the Shenandoah Valley's crown city. Marilyn and Hunter had spotted the house the year before when they drove from Winston-Salem for the annual Ewington Holiday Homes Tour. This particular house wasn't on the tour because it was for sale and empty, but Marilyn had fallen in love with the replica Victorian with its wraparound porch and three-story turret. On a whim, she'd call the realtor for a showing. Once inside, even Hunter saw the charm of the house. Marilyn's writing study now occupied the turret's top level, where she had a panoramic view of the quaint downtown area, the rest of the small city sprawled around it, and the Blue Ridge Mountains to the east. Hunter had taken the ground-floor library as his writing man-cave. Marilyn sighed as she studied the parlor's faded, old-fashioned wallpaper. In some places it had sloughed away on its own, revealing the beautiful, old forest wood planking behind. The places where the wallpaper, done bonded with the wood, managed to end up on all four walls. They wouldn't be able to salvage one wall for an accent. If they were careful with the demo, that means demolition, by the way, they would have quite a few of the wide boards free of wallpaper. Maybe a local artisan could use them to build a piece of furniture for the new parlor, or a bookcase. Yes, that would be a lovely anniversary present for Hunter's study. She had no question that she and Hunter would do the demo. Their first house together was a fixer-upper they'd remodeled themselves. This was only one room. Piece of cake. God, that guy was persistent, Hunter said, coming behind her and wrapping his arms around her. He kissed her neck. I guess when someone buys one of these houses, the local contractors figure they're rolling in money. Marilyn closed her eyes and relished the feel of his body along the length of hers. Well, Hunter drawled, I guess I better be getting to that there hardware store to buy all the equipment we need. Marilyn laughed at his spot-on imitation. Oh, go to the downtown one. Support local businesses and all that. God, no. I'll get caught talking to that ancient crone who runs it. And you'll have to send the cops to rescue me. I'm going to Lowe's. And Home Depot. She made certain he could tell she teased him. Well, at least we have a choice in backwoods Ewington. He'd smiled when he said it, but she didn't like his characterization of the town she'd come to love. You want to start in right away, she asked him. Sure. Why not? Ripping down walls always juices my creativity. When he grabbed his wallet and car keys, she opened her mouth to say she'd get in some writing of her own. But that would only start an argument. I'll make a run to the farmer's market, she said instead. Find something for tomorrow's breakfast. Sounds good. 
He hugged her again and gave her a kiss. Have fun, babe. Don't you be forgetting them there respirators, she told him. She heard him laugh as he went to the garage. Okay, that's it for this week. There'll be more to come. If you were watching Monday Night Football earlier this week, as I was, you witnessed an horrific event. A young player got hit in the chest during a tackle. He stood up and promptly collapsed. Damar Hamlin's heart stopped, and he was resuscitated on the field, then taken to a level one trauma center. These things are rare in professional sports, but I was immediately taken back to the 2001 Daytona 500 when Dale Earnhardt was taken from the track, dead from a crash. DeMar's collapse was sobering for me, especially since my recent surgery was to improve the operation of my heart. Now, DeMar has a toy drive fundraiser going on to support children in need in his hometown. He appears to be one of those professional athletes who hasn't forgotten what he came from and where he came from. And he wants to help others achieve their dreams like he did. His foundation, the Chasing M Foundation, has a GoFundMe page. You can go to GoFundMe and search for the Chasing M's Foundation Community Toy Drive. Please consider donating. He had originally set a goal of $2,500, and he met that before Christmas. But since his collapse, nearly $4 million have been raised. Consider contributing, please and keep DeMar in your thoughts for a full recovery. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. And I didn't forget, Slava Ukraini.